Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today, ooh, ooh, I got an itch for some stop motion animation. Uh, the, that was what I was craving this week. I, uh, Rob, I don't know if you're, you're the same way I am. I, uh, I think stop motion uh, monsters are, are one of my most nostalgic film elements. They remind me of uh, when I was a kid, I had a VHS tape, uh, I think recorded in EP mode, so very grainy and low quality. But I had a tape of the Ray Harryhausen movie Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which featured battles with uh, stop motion skeletons, a, uh, a stop motion robotic minotaur called the Minoton, uh, all kinds of great monsters in it. And so so that's what I was in the mood for this week. And uh, that led us to the selection of Clash of the Titans, a another Harryhausen classic, not directed by Ray Harryhausen, but uh, doing some excellent special effects. We got scorpions. We got a, uh, a all-time, say, top three uh gorgon medusa we got uh ooh, let's see what else is in there we got a crack and all kinds of good stuff yeah i think it's like eight different stop motion creatures in this which is about tops for him i think one million years bc uh, a film of his from 1966 or a film that he did uh, special effects on i think that one also had eight different stop motion creatures so it's it's quite a it's quite an onslaught. This is a special effects picture, uh, certainly. And it is very interesting to think about in terms of the history of stop motion, the legacy of Ray Harryhausen, because this, as we'll discuss, this was uh, his last special effects picture. He retired after this. So it's, it's really his swan song. And it's also very interesting to look at Clash of the Titans as kind of the uh, the perfection of a cinematic style or technique. Uh, that was also already going 
uh, out of fashion a little bit. I mean, this mm. wouldn't be the end of stop motion effects. We have some fabulous stop motion effects that that come out in pictures after this, uh, and, and a lot of that has to do with the the legacy of Harryhausen and how influential he was on other effects uh, folks. But um, but yeah, this was this was his swan song. This is kind of a this this film, uh, whatever else it happens to be, it is kind of an an important effects historical marker. I was trying to think before we started recording about why I love stop motion effects so much for the creation of monsters in particular. And I think it has something to do with uh, actual artifacts of like how the, the animation is produced, you know, adding in these still frames in sequence to, to create the illusion of motion. The fact that it's not capturing something that was in reality when being filmed in continuous motion, the way that, say, people are when you film them, but Mm -hmm. was actually holding still in each still frame, ends up creating this kind of unnatural uh, lack of smoothness in the motion, this kind of jerkiness that... I think some people have singled out about stop motion effects, you uh, know, in, in a detrimental way and saying like, well, you know, it takes away from the realism. Like there, there's always limitations to what you can do with stop motion because of that kind of jerkiness. But it's mm-hmm. exactly that quality that I love about them and why I think they make for uncanny creatures, uh, especially they, they're, they're really great, especially for monsters and uncanny creatures. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, something about the way they're articulated. It worked really well with. It works really well with, say, giant crabs and things like that, you know, insects and arachnids that have um, have that kind of articulation. Works extremely well, like you said, with uh, with uh, inhuman monsters, uh, reanimated the skeletons, of course. Was that Jason and the Argonauts that had the, the army of reanimated skeletons? Yes, I think that's in Jason. But there's there are also some reanimated skeleton monsters in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Okay. I uh, remember there's a great battle with them where I think Sinbad ends up killing them by like um, kicking over a giant pile of like timber of logs and they like roll down and crush the skeletons. Yeah. And at the same time, though, with with Harryhausen, especially, I mean, he and his crew were brave enough to go after creatures that uh, that were far different from this. Uh, things like, as we'll see in this film, uh, a pegasus, uh, a large vulture, things that don't adhere to these qualities and seem, at least to my eye, Far more ambitious, uh, especially especially that Pegasus, uh, a really ambitious uh, effect that they went for there. And I think they pulled it off. Well, yeah. I mean, so exactly the same quality that I think makes stop motion great for monsters, I think would make it hard to do a really cute, cuddly character in stop motion. It would be mm-hmm. might be a little off-putting. But this movie manages it with Bubo, and, and yeah. it maybe helps that Bubo is a robot. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I want to cuddle him. Uh, but he's very cute, has a lot of personality. <laughs> yeah, you might get some cuts and pinches yeah. that way. <laughs> he might be a little hot, I mean, <laughs> yeah, considering where he came from, too. So, 1981, Clash of the Titans. Um, why is it called Clash of the Titans? Do you know the answer to this? I don't. Um, I don't have the, you know, the, the exact answer. A lot of times, you know, it's like, well, the producer said it should be called this, or, or sometimes it's the, it is the original title that was dreamt up. Um, but it's always been kind of a perplexing title because if you're going into this film with a pre-existing, you know, head full of Greek myth, uh, um, facts, you're probably going to say, whoa, hold on a minute. There are no Titans in this picture. There are no Titans to clash how is it possibly going to deliver on the concept? And well, 
uh, technically, I guess Titans do clash in the picture as long as you're willing to stretch the definition of Titan and really embrace everything the movie tells you. I just watched it, and and I don't know what you're talking to. I only recall the one uh, the, uh, they call the Kraken a Titan, but what's the other yes. Titan? They they decide that Medusa is a Titan as well. Oh, <laughs> which is also is is also incorrect, um, equally incorrect. Even though at least Medusa is from Greek mythology, while the Kraken is uh, is Norse mythology. Um, <laughs> so if you if you take their word for it, okay, technically these Titans will sort of clash, uh, but. Yeah, it's a it's a strange title, but it's a dynamic title. It inspires a lot of action, and we do see a lot of action in the picture. Well, to be fair, I recall when we did our episodes on Medusa, there were different origin stories for Medusa. So some say that she was, you know, uh, uh, the priestess who who was wronged by Poseidon, and then uh, and then doubly wronged by Athena and cursed. Was it Athena? I think it was Athena. Anyway, uh, but then there's there's another story, I think, that says that she's just sort of one of the primordial monsters that was given birth to by some other combination of critters. Yeah, I mean, as, as is always the case, and we've discussed this on, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind a lot with myths, I mean, there's, there's, there's generally, there may be famous accounts and famous attempts to sort of create a canonical version uh, of a particular story, but generally there are lots of different stories regarding uh, these these beings and uh, these uh, these stories and these uh, gods and goddesses and heroes. And then at some point, somebody comes along and kind of cobbles them together. And ultimately, I mean, that's what a film like Clash of the Titans does. It cobbles them together and takes uh, characters from other myth cycles, other traditions and other cultures, and works them into the mix, which also is exactly what um, has been done in mythology and folklore and religion since time out of mind. Yes, and I guess that's one of the really fun things about, say, Greek mythology, for instance, which is that there is no canon of Greek mythology. You know, Greek mythology never had, like, a pope that could say, like, Mm -hmm. okay, this is the approved version of the story and other versions of the story are not authoritative. That didn't exist. So you've just always had different versions of the stories, different takes on these characters and themes. Uh, And so this is another one. Yeah, yeah, like like we we mentioned in our episodes on the Medusa several years back. And if you want a deep dive into Medusa or a deeper dive into Medusa mythology, like that's the place to go. We're not going to spend as much time with it here, but you know, in that we point out that it's you see literary traditions regarding these uh, these stories and these characters. Uh, and then it's just like whatever ends up sticking in people's minds the most. And interestingly enough, I remember one of the authors we looked at for the Medusa episodes pointed out that Clash of the Titans presents a version of the Perseus versus Medusa story that has really stuck in the modern um, film uh, moviegoer's mind. In some ways, it is a new authoritative version of the myth because of how popular it is. Yeah, or at least for a certain generation. I don't know what... I don't know how people are watching or how often they're watching Clash of the Titans today, but growing up watching a lot of like TBS and TNT on cable, I feel like they showed this movie every week. Uh, it was just always on television. You could always watch some part of Clash of the Titan. You might not ever watch it beginning to end, but you know you spend a few years watching television, you're going to see all of it at least uh, two or three times, even if you're just catching little bits of it, you know? Mm-hmm. I actually never saw the whole thing until I was older. Uh, but, well, I, I I say I I didn't see all of it until I was older. I thought I had, and then when I went to watch it with my son years back, I was like, oh, I didn't realize there was so much nudity in this film because that was always cut from the, the Turner broadcast. Oh yeah, 
I mean, it's very tame nudity. It's uh, like PG rated nudity, but there, there is there is a little bit of nudity in there. You know, one thing I definitely would not have appreciated if I had seen this movie when I was younger is is what a what, what a treasure trove the cast is. Or I don't know if I should even say the the full cast. I mean, this movie is full of things you might call cameos, where a mm-hmm. well known actor or actress is is brought in to have like I don't know like one or two lines or even no lines just be on screen. Yeah, there there are actors who do get a fair amount of uh, screen uh, time in this film and have some some great lines, and then there yeah there are others that are just kind of standing around or they have just a just a few moments on screen. Uh, so yeah, this is going to be one where we we might not spend as much time with every member of the cast, uh, but we'll try and mention everybody of note uh, as we move forward towards the plot section. But before we get there, I guess we should uh, make up just a couple of notes here. Uh, well, first let's let's go ahead and listen to the trailer. Uh, so we can get a just a splash of the audio from Clash of the Titans. In an ancient age, before recorded time, men were measured by their courage and women by their beauty. Mighty gods ruled the universe, and fear and destruction covered the world. It was a time of darkness when only the force of love could bring back the light. Now. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Clash of the Titans, a sweeping legend of a golden age, soon the motion picture epic of our time. Enter into the wondrous world of Perseus and Andromeda, a world of passion and power, beauty and bravery, mystery and magic, a world that transcends fantasy and leaps into legend. One courageous man, rides between an angry heaven and the fury of hell on earth. He rides a winged stallion across the sky. He rides to save the one who owns his heart. He rides towards wonders no man has ever seen and terrors no man has ever faced. Clash of the Titans, starring Laurence Olivier, Maggie Smith, Ursula Andress, Burgess Meredith, Claire Bloom, and introducing Harry Hamlin as Perseus and Judy Bowker as Andromeda. It will touch you, shock you, dazzle your senses, and sweep you to the limits of your imagination. Clash of the Titans. Very sweeping, very uh, <laughs> uh, very mythic, very 1981. I think the trailer should have had uh, Jefferson Starship in it. <laughs> It's important to note, and this is, I mean, you can't approach this film without realizing that it, of course, comes out in the wake of Star Wars. The massive hit that was Star Wars comes a few years later. There, there are aspects of the picture that are clearly going after that Star Wars money, um, kind, of, kind of going after that Star Wars vibe. I had the same thought, and one of the things that really jumped out at me was the character of Bubo, the robotic owl created by Hephaestus, modeled on the the organic owl of Athena. Um this struck me as obviously R2-D2 with wings. Did you have the same thought? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's clearly an attempt to cash in on that droid magic. It even speaks like a droid. It kind of speaks in its own kind of like droid uh, whirls and, and, and beeps and so forth. And we also get to the point where Perseus can understand <laughs> uh, the owl when it's speaking to him. And so we get these kind of like human droid interactions like we see in Star Wars. Yes, and I also thought Perseus in this movie seemed to me strongly influenced by Luke Skywalker. Yeah, 
But without that sort of, I don't know, uh, definitely some different, like it's, it's kind of, it's weird to go back and look at, um, at Luke in the first Star Wars film and decide how you feel about him because he's more flawed and relatable. You know, he's like a kind of a a grumpy, he's a grumpy teen and Perseus is the son of a God who gets a lot of stuff handed to him. And so Perseus spends a lot of the film not being particularly relatable, I think, um, but uh, we can discuss that as we move forward. I mean, I think it's kind of a, a problem that exists in the core myth. Like, unlike Luke Skywalker, he doesn't have that sense of uh, of lacking and yearning. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he, he's just he's just great at everything from the get go. Yeah. All right. Before we move forward, if you're you're wanting to watch this film for yourself, well, where you, can you find it? Well, first of all, make sure you put that 1981 in there because otherwise you're going to end up watching the remake. Uh, I think the remake <laughs> comes up first in search. Uh, but that's a crime. What? <laughs> I haven't even seen it. I don't know why I judge that. I just know without watching it that it's awful. Um, all I can say for it is that you have computer animated monsters instead of stop motion monsters. Um, you have what? Uh, Liam Neeson is in it. And so is uh, oh, okay. uh, uh, Ray Fiennes is in it as well. He plays Hades, who isn't in. Uh, Hades doesn't factor into this one, but he he pops up in the remake. And so they're fine. You have, those are two great actors, put them in some shiny and weird armor and they're, they're, they're cool. But then there's also like a scene where the new Perseus finds a, a a robotic owl in like a trash can or something. And he's like, no, thank you. And like shuts it. And it's like, yeah, it's like, clearly it has the, the, the opinion that it doesn't need to be uh, cute and uh, impressive. It needs just to be like, it just needs to be like uh, hard and, uh, and action packed. So I don't know. It, 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 I I think I enjoyed it when I watched it and it's worth watching for, I guess, for a couple of performances, but uh, it's not as, as fun and touchable as this film. Of a CGI laden remake that just gets in some digs at the old movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, I think that was the main dig, but it was like, yeah, I didn't, I, it rubbed me the wrong way for sure. Yeah. Uh, so where can you watch this film if you want to watch it? Well, if if what I know from my own experience is still true, I would say turn on TBS. Now, now go ahead and flip to TNT. Whichever channel it's on, go ahead and watch it there. Uh, <laughs> but if it's not av- available to you on television right now, you can rent or buy this pretty much anywhere in any way that you get your films. This is not one of our more obscure choices. It's It's yeah. out there. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, let's jump into the humans involved. I'm going to do things a little differently here, and I'm just going to hit all the um, behind-the-scenes folks right at the top. Uh, so the director of this is Desmond Davis, who lived 1926 through 2021, British camera operator turned writer and director. His first directorial credit was 1964's Girl with Green Eyes, starring Peter Finch and Rita Tushingham. One of his immediate follow-ups was 1966's Time Lost and Time Remembered, a.k.a. I Was Happy There, and 1967's Smashing Time. The first two of these at least seem to be, like, really well-remembered, you know, at least within their, their own genre. You know, I think it's kind of maybe a snapshot of kind of like, um, you know, uh, really cool 60s London uh, type mm. stuff. Uh, he also directed the 1984 Donald Sutherland thriller Ordeal by Innocence and an adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes tale The Sign of Four starring Ian Richardson in 1983. He also did a lot of TV work. I don't think I've seen any of that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I certainly haven't seen the, the older pictures. I might have seen The Sign of Four. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and really look at some screenshots. Who's Sherlock in that one? Is that, is that a Jeremy Brett movie? I believe it's an Ian Richardson. Uh, oh, has, that's yeah, right. you already said that. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jeremy Brett. All all of those were were for TV, um, and they did the sign of four at one point. All right, the writer on this is Beverly Cross, who lived 1931 through 1998. English playwright and screenwriter, longtime husband of actor Maggie Smith, 
who is also in this picture until his death. His screenplays include 1963's Jason and the Argonauts, 1965's Genghis Khan starring Omar Sharif, and 1977's Sinbad. And the Eye of the Tiger, or in the Eye of the Tiger. I can't remember what his relationship to the yeah, Eye of the Tiger. I don't think they could fit him in the Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, it's and the Eye of the the Tiger. Uh, again, that movie is uh, incredibly dopey. Uh, some very questionable casting decisions, but it's also a heck of a lot of fun. It's got great monsters and and all that. Uh, creator of visual effects on this and also uh, a producer of the film is Ray Harryhausen, who we mentioned already lived 1920 through 2013. You know, I believe this is our first Harryhausen film. I know he's come up on the show before, but I don't remember what movie uh, that was in the context of. Maybe we were just talking about something else that had stop motion in it, but... Oh, man, I, I literally get warm feelings inside just hearing the name Ray Harryhausen. Like it, it sends the, this kind of like those jets of, of warm water through my chest. Well, yeah, it even kind of sounds like it, right? Housen, you're at, you're at home and Harry, it's kind of like rub the fur, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, if, if you are, have it ever been into movie monsters and special effects, then you know the name. He was a American-British Oscar-winning animator and special effects creator who was a major pioneer in the industry and created the uh, Dynamation approach to stop motion. I, I remember talking with Seth about this on one of the um, weird houses that he uh, appeared on, probably the, uh, probably the one we were talking about, Alice. Uh, but it seems like everybody that did stop motion, they had some sort of cool name for it that wasn't stop motion, almost like there was a, a rejection of, of the term stop motion, like it sounded too uh, boring or something. Hmm. Or maybe they just, you know, just need a, a, something you can copyright to call it. I don't know. Anyway, Harryhausen's credits. Um, you know, I, I usually don't list everything. But I'm just going to go ahead and list, I think, all the, the major films that he did here. Uh, 49, Mighty Joe Young. 53, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. 55, It Came from Beneath the Sea. 56, The Animal World. Also in 56, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. 57, 20 Million Years to Earth. 58, The Seventh Voyage of the Sinbad. 1960, The Three Worlds of Gulliver. Uh, 1961, Mysterious Island. That has That's a got a giant, giant crab, crab in it. it. Yep. <laughs> 63, Jason and the Argonauts. 64, First Men in the Moon. Um, one Million Years B.C. in 66, The Valley of Gwangi in 69, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad in 73, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger in, in 1977, and then wraps it all up in 81 with Clash of the Titans. We may have to come back and do at least one of these other ones at some point because I, I just love these monsters so much. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's so many just iconic monster designs. They have so much character to them. And you miss that kind of thing when you're watching something like um, the Lou Ferrigno Hercules movie that we covered, which is a very fun, very, yeah. uh, very exciting picture. But with the stop motion in that doesn't hold a candle to this. That one did have some great visual flair, but yeah, n not so much in, in the monsters. Uh, yeah. Who is that character who is like, uh, oh, I don't know, some kind of like wizard who lived out on an asteroid or something? Oh, it's what's well, like um, supposed to be Daedalus, right? Oh, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. That was great. <laughs> All right. Um, real quickly, the music in this is by Lawrence Rosenthal, born 1926, prolific, Oscar-nominated, and Emmy-winning composer who worked in TV, film, and stage. His film scores include A Raisin in the Sun, The Miracle Worker, Beckett, and the 1977 adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, father of noted stem cell scientist, Professor Nadia Rosenthal. Hmm. Um, the, the music in this is very... 
epic and sweeping and, uh, you know, it does its job. What can you say? All right. Now, when it comes to the cast, this is going to be the story of Perseus and Medusa. Uh, so Perseus, you got to have you a fresh hunk, right? I mean, no, yep. no old hunks will do. Yep. And uh, the fresh one they had here was Harry Hamlin. Uh, I believe the credits or the credits of the trailer, I forget which offhand say, and introducing Harry Hamlin. <laughs> Just removed from his original packaging. <laughs> and, you know, it, as is often the case, it kind of feels that way with the performance. I mean, he's good in this, but, um, and, and yeah. to be fair, he's playing Perseus, a, um, a, a hero, a son of a God. Uh, so there are, it, how do you play that in a way that's relatable? I mean, I think the various shows where I've seen someone portraying Perseus and P- Perseus is, it's kind of a big lift to make this feel like a real person. Uh, so Harry Hamlin does a, as fine a job as you might expect. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to say, especially because I can say good things about his later career. I don't think his acting is stellar in this movie. He's <laughs> he's kind of a slab. He like he stands there and he's handsome and ooh, look at his shoulders and all that. Uh, he, he does not really do a great job of acting, I will say. But in his later career, he did lots of stuff where I thought he was great. He was great in Mad Men. He was great on mm-hmm. uh, Veronica Mars. You know, he oh, yeah. I did. I, I don't know what I guess he was just very young here. Oh yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, he was very young. He, I think he'd only been, I think he'd done some stage acting. He would had one movie uh, appearance before this, um, but yeah, went on to to be known more for uh, again Mad Men. He was on L.A. Law for the first five seasons of that. Um, I would say that uh, I'll come back to this, but I think there's one sequence in the film where his uh, his performance is is definitely better than the rest of the picture. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's also the best sequence in the entire film. So uh, we'll discuss in a bit. Uh, but uh, he also has some interesting science connections as well. I didn't know about this, but his grandfather, uh, Chauncey Jerome Hamlin, founded the Buffalo Museum of Science. And his father, um, Chauncey Jerome Hamlin Jr., was an aeronautical engineer who helped design the Saturn uh, rocket with Dr. Werner von Braun. And uh, yeah, Harry himself apparently co-founded the fusion power company or co- yeah, co-founded the fusion co- power company TAE technologies in 1998. Wow. So, yeah, I did not know he had fusion power connections. That's, funny. I had no idea either, but it's, uh, yes, it's, it's listed in, in more than one place. So I don't think I'm just being scammed on that. All right. Let's see other mortals of note in the picture. Well, uh, Sean Phillips born 1933 is in it as Cassiopeia. Okay, so she's playing the uh, the queen of the city of Joppa, the mother of Princess Andromeda. Right, right. And Sean Phillips is notable because, well, I mean, she was Reverend Mother Gaius Helen uh, Mohayam in David Lynch's Dune in 1984. And she was also the Witch of Endor in Ewoks, the Battle for Endor in 1985. Uh, terrific in both of those. She's a, a fun actor, even if, even if she doesn't, she does get to be a little like, um, she, she does a, like a stern... Um, uh, sort of female, mild villain role really well. You know, like she she has that definite sternness to it. Because uh, in this, she's like, okay, I will sacrifice my daughter to the Kraken. Uh, it's what the gods want, so I'm going to do it. And you, before that, there's a scene where she uh, earns the wrath of uh, Maggie Smith yes. by just standing in front of a statue of Maggie Smith, of <laughs> the goddess Thetis, uh, and just being like, by the way, my daughter, who's about to have her wedding day, is more beautiful than the goddess I'm standing in front of right now. And of course, then the ground begins to shake and mm-hmm. all that. So uh, bad call. Bad call. Yes. 
So she's a lot of fun in the picture. Um, Judy Bachner plays Andromeda, born 1954. English actor, probably best known for this film, but she was also in the 1977 Louis Jordan Dracula movie and Franco Zeffirelli's brother, son, sister Moon in 72. Okay, so she plays Andromeda, the the princess of the city of Joppa, who uh, in the original story, she's uh, she's rescued by Perseus, though I like how in this version of the story, there, there's more of a complicated backstory with the whole, uh, you know, her previous betrothal to, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Calabas and all that, that we'll get to in a bit. All right, one, well, there are two more mortals of note, but the most important mortal uh, to discuss here is Amon, who is, uh, he's what's supposed to be a, um, like a, a Greek dramatist uh, turned mm. sort of, uh, I don't know, he's just up for adventures, right? He's kind of a rogue, I guess. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I interpreted him as, I guess, a fictionalized version of Aeschylus or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess he's kind of he's kind of a bard, uh, kind of the bard of the party here. And he is played by the terrific American actor of theater, film, and television, Burgess Meredith, of 1907 through 1997. You got to fight the Gorgon Rock. You got to fight it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, many people will know him best for his role as the coach, Mickey Goldmill, in the Rocky franchise, or at least the first three pictures. But um, he was in so many things. Like, he played the Penguin in the 1960s TV series Batman. Hmm. Um, he, One of his other really iconic roles is playing the character Henry Bemis in the classic Twilight Zone episode, Time Enough at Last. This is the one about the guy mm. who survives the apocalypse. And then he survives the destruction of humanity and all lenses. <laughs> and, and then he thinks he gets to read all the books in the library, but then he breaks his glasses and it's like, oh, the tragedy. And, you know, it's great. Uh, but <laughs> but it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a famous episode. I was just trying to remember what happens to his character at the end of his arc in the Rocky movies. And I think unless I'm re remembering wrong that in Rocky three, Mr. T is so rude to him that he like has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> oh my God. Really? Huh. <laughs> Something like that. Well, like I say, he was in tons of stuff. Uh, I'm not going to try and list uh, anywhere near all of it here, but I will say he's in 1985 Santa Claus, the movie um, on top of some other things. Uh, he's, He's a, he's a tremendous actor, and he's terrific in this film. So this is a film that features a lot of exposition, it, a, a young hunk who's very green, and then a lot of stoic hero and god speak, you know? Mm. But Meredith makes you believe virtually every line he delivers. It's kind of a master class in breathing life into lines that could otherwise fall completely flat. I agree. Yes, this is a quality we often see in uh, older actors and actresses who like once you've been doing it long enough, you you kind of acquire a sort of uh, cumulative magic that allows you tr to transcend the written material you're given. I, I rarely mm -hmm. notice this quality in younger actors. Yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly why you bring in a, an older character actor like Burgess Meredith uh, to play a role like this and to work with the younger, more uh, inexperienced actors and sort of bring something out of them. All right. One other um, mortal of note, and uh, that is Tim Piggott Smith, who lived 1946 through 2017. He plays Thallo. This is kind of our he's kind of like the miscellaneous guard dude that lasts the longest in the picture you know he's yeah. just a member of the party just he's like the fighter of the party he's a soldier in a big uh, soldier's helmet wearing a hilariously short skirt yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the thing i was I, you know i always love checking out the imdb user submitted parental 
warnings about the picture. Uh-huh. And one of them was that uh, saying that the 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 star of this film, Harry Hamlin, is I think believe they said mostly nude the entire picture. <laughs> and it's like, well, he's not really most. I don't know if I'd say he's mostly nude, but yes, uh, he like a lot of characters in the film is you know often wearing a very short um, outfit. Anyway, Tim Pickett Smith here is is the kind of actor I'd probably spend more time talking about in another picture that's not so loaded. But uh, suffice to say, accomplished English actor with a long career on stage, screen, and TV. And in the later stages of his career, he appeared in such big productions as Gangs of New York from 2002, Alexander from 2004, V for Vendetta from 2005, and The Quantum of Solace from 2008. All right, moving on. Let's get to some monsters. We mentioned Calabas already. Um, this is the tragic beastman villain positioned as the son of Thetis instead of Achilles, who's actually her son in, um, in, in various Greek myths. But instead, this character is actually based on Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Ah, uh, the Caliban connection makes sense because, so while Calabas is... Uh, is of course one of the villains of the movie. He he does a lot of evil and he lashes out for revenge. Uh, he's also a character like you feel his pain. Yeah, and I remember this from watching this movie as a kid. Even like I I sympathize with Calabos a lot, and part of that was like yeah, he's the monster character in a movie full of a lot of humanoid characters. But I, I think also it's just baked into the movie. Like the movie uh, stresses that yeah, he did some terrible things, but also the gods have been potentially unfair to him and have punished him with this monstrous transformation. There's like a whole scene on Mount Olympus where the gods are talking about how, uh, oh, if he'd been the son of Zeus and he'd done all the same stuff, he wouldn't have gotten punished. Yeah, but Zeus is like, but uh, he's not. Um, and yeah, oh God, we'll, we'll get to Zeus in a minute. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, any, anyway, Calabos is played by Neil McCarthy, who lived 1932 through 1985. And uh, yeah, he had a very distinct face. Uh, so you'll recognize him from a lot of pictures. He was in 68's Where Eagles Dare, 1964 Zulu, and he was in Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits from 1981. Other monsters in this picture that are played by human beings, we have the Stygian witches. Uh, so there are three witches. We talk, we talk about uh, these, these characters. Uh, they're based on a good bit in the Medusa episode. But there's, these are the three blind witches that Perseus has to go to in order to find the Medusa, um, essentially. And they're played by Flora Robson, who lived 1902 through 1984, Anna Manahan, who lived 1924 through 2009, and Freda Jackson, who lived 1907 through 1990. Great witch performances by all three, though I do not know which one is which because they're all, they all have a lot of makeup on. Uh, but, uh, and they all three have very packed filmography. So maybe in the future, we'll hit on a movie that has one of them in it and we'll refer back to it. But suffice to say, great witch scene, three great witches here. Very much agree that they are great, but they kind of act as one. They're not very uh, individually distinctive by design. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've said this before, you know, it's like it is, there is a lot of sexism in the whole um, older um, female actors end up playing witches in a lot of pictures, but when they do it really well, uh, you got to, you got to give them credit. And all, all three of these witches are great. All right, let's move on to the gods. Yeah, speaking of sexism, let's get to Zeus. <laughs> well, you know, he's he is the king of the gods, so we have to start with him. Yeah. Um and and yeah, he is pretty sexist. But yeah, this is the the great Laurence Olivier playing Zeus. Uh Laurence Olivier, of course, lived 1907 through 1989, one of the biggest British acting names of the 20th century, appearing in uh in in Clash as the Greek king of the gods, 
in what I'm to understand was largely a favor to co-star Maggie Smith and her husband. Okay, so her husband wrote the movie and decided to really play up the part of the goddess Thetis and then Mm -hmm. have his wife cast in that role and then get their friend, Laurence Olivier, to play Zeus, right? Yes, that's that's what I've read. Um, that being said, though, and also taking into the fact that apparently uh, Olivier was sick during the filming, um, I, I think he's re- he's really good in this. Like it's yes, he's playing he's playing a god, he's playing Zeus, uh, and he may just he he doesn't feel like he's going through the motions. Maybe he was, and that's just how good he was as an actor. But I feel like there's some wonderful dimensions to this performance as this egotistical, uh, calmly threatening tyrant who is also not the villain of the piece. No, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. He's he's not the villain, even though a lot of what's happening in the movie is a result of his uh, capriciousness and hypocrisy. Yeah. And uh, there's just uh, just it's kind of accepted sort of as a law of nature that Zeus is just completely unfair. And that's just the reality. It's like the Yeah, it's just the reality everybody has to deal with. Yeah, kind of like the scene. I think it's very pronounced in the scene where he asked uh, Athena to give up her owl to Perseus. And she doesn't want to, but he's like, but it's my wish. And he does it in this way where it's like, it, it, oh, it's just so good. He hits, hits it perfectly. Well, yeah, also, the backstory is hilarious because Athena already gave Perseus a helmet that would make him invisible. That's pretty good, <laughs> right? That's that's yeah. a good Christmas present. Um, and uh, Perseus, he's like, well, I lost it. He, dro- he dro- dropped it in the swamp. So Zeus is like, you will get my little boy a new present. <laughs> yes. Give him your toy. Give him your favorite thing. And, uh, and you know, she has to do it, but she finds a loophole. Uh, anyway, uh, Lawrence Olivier, tons of tons of uh, pictures uh, that he was in. He was, of course, a major Shakespearean actor of stage and screen, and his credits encompass everything from the likes of 1940s Rebecca, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, 48's Hamlet, uh, and also such uh, later-day, largely, I guess, genre hits, such as 1978's The Boys from Brazil, 1976's Marathon Man, and 1972's Sleuth. He is the, the diabolical Nazi dentist in Marathon Man. Right. And he's a Nazi hunter in The Boys from Brazil. So I guess, you know, they balance out. Boys from Brazil, of course, is the um, they tried to clone Hitler movie. Oh, I've never seen that one. Yeah, it's oh, it's it's uh, I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember thinking it was good. It has Gregory Peck in it. Gregory Peck plays um, uh, Dr. Mengele uh, on the run. Yeah. All right. Other gods. We'll try and try and run through some of these quickly because, OK, we have Hera, played by Claire Bloom, born 1931, known for such films as 52's Limelight, 63's The Haunting and 2010's The King's Speech. Still active, still going at it. Doesn't do much in this picture. Uh, she's got like three lines, maybe. Yep. But then we have Maggie Smith, again, playing Thetis, born 1934. Uh, yeah, legendary Maggie Smith, known probably more to modern fans for her roles in Gosford Park, Downton Abbey, and the Harry Potter franchise. But she's had a very long career and is also still active. She still has she has upcoming pictures coming down the, the pipe. And uh, she's been active on TV and screen since 1955. Maggie Smith is great in this. She's great in everything I've ever seen her in. She's always excellent. Uh, and... Her character is really interesting because you you see her from two completely different sides. 
To the human characters, she's basically a villain. Like, she imposes the need to sacrifice Princess Andromeda to the Kraken as she speaks out of a statue to, you know, lay a curse upon the city. But then you also see the other side, which is that on Mount Olympus, she's the underdog. You feel for Mm -hmm. her and you see that Zeus mistreats her. So she appears both as a kind of uh, sympathetic hero and as a a cruel, uh, overbearing villain, depending on whether your, your point of view is earthly or heavenly. Yeah, yeah. So she definitely gets a lot of screen time and has a uh, ultimately a really well-defined character. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have Ursula Andress as Aphrodite, born 1936. Uh, she only has like one line in this film, uh, but the Swiss model turned actor was a major sex symbol of her time with a breakout role in 1962's Dr. No, uh, Bond film. Mm-hmm. Her other credits are kind of all over the place. Like, for instance, she's in Sergio Martino's Slave of the Cannibal God from 1978. I was not prepared for this uh, on rewatching. I was like, Ursula Andress. Oh, I guess excited to see her in this movie. She says like one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just one line. And I think she was pretty highly billed in the picture, too. Yeah. All right. Other gods. We we still got multiple gods to go here. Um, God packed this movie. But we have Poseidon, a severely, I think, depowered Poseidon, Mm -hmm. um, played by Jack Gwillem, who lived 1909 through 2001. He had parts in 62's Lawrence of Arabia, 70's Patton. He played Van Helsing in 1987's The Monster Squad. And he was also in such films as 1970's Cromwell, 1966's A Man for All Seasons, and 1964's The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. A Man for All Seasons. Is that the one that has uh, that has Robert Shaw as Henry VIII? I believe that's right. I've seen this film before, but it's been a while. Yeah, Robert Shaw. And, uh, and, and a pretty stacked cast. I mean, you got people like John Hurd in it, uh, Orson Welles, uh, et cetera. A really good cast. Okay, so they, they brought in another heavy hitter to play Poseidon. And uh, does Poseidon even have one line? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I think he speaks, but yeah, he's a very meek Poseidon. Like, basically, his role is to go down in the water and call up the Kraken. Once uh, Zeus has said, release the Kraken. Uh, so he's he's the one who actually does the releasing. So especially given how powerful Poseidon is in many of the uh, traditions of Greek mythology, it really he really feels depowered here. But I would say in this film, Maggie Smith as Thetis fills the role that would have been played by Poseidon. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you're right. That that role ends up absorbing a lot of the the power yeah. from various other figures in it in the film. Oh, yeah, because another one, another major character from uh, mythology, Athena, the goddess Athena, is in is in this, played by Susan Fleetwood, who lived 1944 through 1995. Her other credits include 1990's The Craze. This is the one about the, the underworld, uh, the London underworld twins. Hmm. Uh, 1985's Young Sherlock Holmes. And she's in, uh, apparently in Tarkovsky's 1986 film, The Sacrifice, which... Uh, as I remember, is very haunting and heavy and, and also very long. Oh, I love Tarkovsky, but I haven't seen that one. It's uh, um, it's 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 kind of a it, it's it's good. It's a deep picture. I saw it in college. Yeah, mm. I got to see it on the big screen. Uh, but judging by this movie, OK, Athena, what's she got us of, you know, like wisdom, uh, crafts, war, any of that stuff? No, I think she's got us of owls in this movie. Yeah. Goddess of pet ownership. Basically, that's all she does. <laughs> Uh, goddess of uh, veterinary practice. Oh, but we also have one more god. We have Hephaestus in this, 
played by Pat Roach, Big Pat Roach, who lived 1937 through 2004. He plays the uh, robot owl repairman of the gods. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he is the one you would, I guess, go to for this sort of thing. If if you can't get a hold of Daedalus, um, you know, if you want to keep it in Mount Olympus, then mm-hmm. yeah, he's the one to go to. Well, he didn't he train Daedalus in some of the traditions? Oh, maybe. Uh, anyway, sure. Pat Roach, British wrestler turned actor who's really in tons of nostalgic flicks from the 80s and 90s. Uh, I think one of the big ones that, that most people are familiar with is he, of course, plays that German mechanic that Indiana Jones fist fights underneath the uh, propeller-driven airplane in Raiders of the Last Lost Ark in 1981. Oh, yeah. It gets turned into, uh, into Nazi soup by the, the propeller. Mm-hmm. He's, I think he's actually in all three of the original indie movies, uh, playing smaller roles. And I think he plays another role in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but this is the big one. Mm. Uh, he plays the wizard that turns into a monster in 1984's Conan the Destroyer. So he's one of many big meaty men in a movie that is, has like a, a whole cast of big meaty men. I like that you'd make even your wizard big and meaty. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a very, very meaty picture. Uh, that one, it's weird. It's like, I think if I were to talk about a Conan film on Weird House, I think it would need to be Conan the Destroyer. Okay. Like that's <laughs> the goofier one. Um, uh, but anyway, Pat Roach also played General K- uh, Kale or Kale. I can't remember how it's pronounced, in 1988's Willow. Uh, this is the dude with the big, like, gorilla skull on his mask. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, and he also played the Titan Atlas in Jim Henson's The Storyteller, The Greek Myths. So even though he's not a Titan in this and there are very questionable Titan classifications in this film, he has played a Titan before. That series of Jim Henson's Storyteller, by the way, I'd say is probably my other favorite adaptation of this story of like the Perseus and Medusa arc and has a, uh, I would say has a Medusa design to rival this one. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one did the wings, which uh, you do see in a number of the uh, the accounts uh, of old. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right, it's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, shall we get into the plot of Clash of the Titans? These Titans got a clash, baby, so let's let's find out how they do it. Okay, well, one thing I wanted to note is it is amazing how much plot they are able to cram into two hours in this movie. <laughs> we may uh, focus in more granular detail on the, the earlier parts of the movie and then hop around for some of the later adventures. Uh, but uh, it has a great opening as howling wind, dust blowing in the foreground. And then through a haze, we see a procession of Greek soldiers escorting like a coffin or a litter. It's a, it's a box. And then we get the opening line spoken by the wicked king, Acrasius, who says, Bear witness, Zeus, and all you gods on high Olympus. I condemn my daughter Danae and her son Perseus to the sea. Her guilt and sin have brought shame to Argus. I, Acrisius the king, now purge her crime and restore my honor. Their blood is not on my hands. And then he uh, he has them put into the box. Danae is clutching her baby boy, and they they put him in the box, cast him into the ocean, and we see the box being tossed cruelly by the waves. Now, we know in the the story that Acrisius does this to avert a prophecy that Perseus will bring about his doom. Does the movie tell us this? I don't think it does, or if it does, I, I missed it. No, I, I, what I got from it was just the basic, like, something's wrong, Zeus demands this, so I'm going to do it. And that's all there is to it. Zeus said it, I believe it. There you go. But it turns out Zeus does not want this because uh, we're going to go to Mount Olympus in a minute. And Zeus is going to be like, why would you do that? <laughs> uh, so what I wanted to ask first, I, I couldn't tell where a lot of the location shots in this movie were coming from. There are parts right here at the opening on this coastline, which I assume is supposed to be in Greece, but they look like Scotland. 
Yeah, I read that they filmed at Pinewood Studios, I guess, for, you know, the interiors. And then they also shot in various places in the Mediterranean. So, mm. um, I mean, that's ultimately, I, I'm not sure where uh, they are in this particular scene, though. Well, from here, we go to the opening credits and we zoom over beautiful landscapes and you see the mountain peaks, the spires, glacier pockets and the crevices of the rocks. And this is the kind of landscape stuff that always works on me. You know, it, it puts mm-hmm. me in the right mood for an epic. I recall thinking that Krull also got a lot of mileage out of just beautiful landscape shots that weren't strictly related to the story. Just put a camera up on top of the mountains and, uh, you know, it, it works. It, it, they do it for a reason. Well, Kroll is the planet, so you got to see a lot of the geography. <laughs> right. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Kroll. <laughs> but from here, we go to Mount Olympus, which this is not on a mountain. It's an indoor studio set. And, uh, the, you know, a bunch of gods in white robes are standing around on marble floors with big columns in the background. Uh, I love Clash of the Titans, but I, I feel like the Olympus set I don't know. It feels kind of boring to me. I feel like they could have made the gods look more interesting. Yeah, it's like it basically looks like a bunch of older people are about to be adult baptized. You know, they have like baptismal <laughs> yes. gowns on and they're standing around in like the um, uh, standing around a big mall somewhere with a lot of white marble. Though I do love the throne. The throne. When we switch the scenes of the throne, it's pretty, pretty great because there is Laurence Olivier in his big sterling white robe with uh, like a, a gold lion on one side, a gold snake wrapped around an egg on the other. Uh, he's on a throne of white marble, and behind his head is like a blue laser show. Yes, I do like the laser show, uh, and I guess that's to show the power emanating from the throne of Zeus. Uh, and he clearly, he's more powerful than all the other gods. They, they're not going to do anything without his approval. So one of the gods brings the report of what he just saw, which is uh, King Acrisius. Hey, he threw his daughter and her baby son into the ocean in a box. And some of the gods here, I think maybe this is uh, this is Thetis or Hera, maybe Thetis. They try to defend Acrisius. They say, hey, look, Zeus, he built a lot of really solid temples. He dedicated <laughs> them to you. Uh, who really cares if you throw a woman and a child in the ocean? But Zeus is incensed by this. He says a hundred good deeds cannot atone for murder. I don't care how many temples he dedicated to me. Uh, you, you can't you can't do this to people. And in this scene, we go around. He kind of like addresses each of the gods. Uh, we, we see Athena holding her owl. We see uh, Aphrodite. And again, this is Ursula Andress here. And she it's interesting. You know, Aphrodite is supposed to be the goddess of love, but she is making a face like she has just handed someone a goblet full of poisoned wine and is watching them drink it. <laughs> like she just found out that all of her dialogue got cut from the. From the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, Zeus, Zeus is demand. He demands justice. He says nothing can erase this horrible crime. And uh, so uh, he says that uh, King Acrisius must be punished, but not just him, him and his people, too, by the way. Let's let's just do his whole city. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's uh, throw them in there. So he calls up Poseidon and he says, I command you to raise the wind and the sea and then let loose the Kraken. Oh, and also protect Danny and her son. He's like, make sure they get somewhere safe. Yeah, because they I don't know if it's revealed yet, but they reveal it shortly after this that, of course, uh, as we know from from uh, the mythology, Perseus is Zeus's son. So, of course, he's invested in this particular individual and his mom uh, because it's for Zeus. It's all about him. 
<laughs> like that's, and I guess he is the king of the universe in this narrative. So maybe he has a reason to feel so, uh, feel that way. But, uh, but that's how he approaches everything. Right. That is what happened. And they go back to sort of like all the gods gossiping about it. They're all like, oh, you know what really happened? He, Zeus, uh, quote, loved that girl, Danny, and then he got her pregnant with Perseus. And so that's his own son. So that's why he's protecting them. And that's why he's mm-hmm. mad. Now, uh, Rob, did you have any thoughts about the fact that in this movie, Zeus appears to have a miniatures hobby? I as I, I know you uh, sometimes uh, mess around with some miniatures yourself. So, uh, so yeah, what, what what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I think this is one of the great set pieces in the picture because um, he, he has this room with this with these wonderful shelves. Each one has a mini um, on it, a mini representing a different mortal in the world. Um, on one level, I've always liked this because this is just prime. Uh, this is a prime way to display your miniature collection, but uh, but also it's a it's a great set, and it it really uh, nicely displays this idea that the mortals are in this case literally the playthings of the gods. Like they're like that's that's literally like he'll we see this time and time again. You know they'll pick one of these up and they'll do something to it. They'll break it or they'll repair it. And it has real world ramifications for the individual it represents. But to the gods, it's, it's all a game. It's all ultimately about them. Or at least that's what the movie's saying. So Greek Pantheon, if you're listening, um, I'm just interpreting what the film is saying. Uh, it's <laughs> right. not me. Don't, Don't turn me into a spider. <laughs> <laughs> we see Zeus kind of pulled it. Does he pull down the, um, the Acrisius minifig here? And he's like, well, I'm done with you and just crushes it. Yeah. And then we see like basically then we see the real life king just have a heart attack in the middle of a, of the street while the winds and are rolling in and the earthquakes are beginning. Yeah. He just goes, ah, and blood starts coming out of his mouth. And, uh, and also, yes, Argos, the city is doomed. So we see, uh, Poseidon, he, he's underwater and he raises up the waters and causes like a tidal wave to wash over the city, destroy all the buildings, kill all the people. And then the Kraken attacks. Yeah. So the effects here, you know, by modern standards are maybe a little, um, a little rougher around the edges, but there's no denying the Kraken when he shows up. This is a, the, our first glimpse at the big stop motion beast here. I, I've always loved this design. It's, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, of creature from the Black Lagoon wound up in him. But, you know, he also has these these four long arms that are kind of squid-like. He's also very reminiscent of some sort of great gigantic beast. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say cross between creature from the Black Lagoon and kind of a capuchin monkey. Yeah. All right, so we get a report about that in Mount Olympus. Uh, that that city's been destroyed, and Danny and her child have been brought to safety on the island of Seraphos, where they will be allowed to live in peace and security. Uh, and then we get some scenes indicating that Perseus is really growing up fast because we see him do like trick riding on ponies on the beach. Yeah, yeah, he's a strapping young lad. And Zeus is uh, commenting on this. He's like, the advantage of a strong body and a handsome face. What could any mortal desire or deserve more? <laughs> he puts him up there on the shelf. Again, it's great because he's like, he's like, it's it's all, all these, these mortals are to him are just like fancy, beautiful playthings. Yeah. And he, this one he's personally invested in. Yeah. He's like, Hera, tell me my son is handsome. <laughs> Oh, but then so Maggie Smith comes in and she she, you know, he's talking about his son and she goes, what of my son, Calabas? This is the first we've heard of him. Uh, But Zeus essentially is like, well, sucks to be him. 
we get the impression that Calabos was sort of a Taz-like figure, just sort of like going around destroying everything he touched. He even killed all of Zeus's flying horses, uh, except for the one Pegasus. Mm-hmm. And for his crimes, Calabas has been sent to live in a soggy marsh where he is transformed into a monster, a mockery of the human form. And we don't see Calabas yet, but we do see a, a minifig of him. Yeah, is the, I think this is kind of the, the transformation sequence, right? Where he puts, um, he puts the, the, the figurine of human Calabas in the middle of this, um, this arena they have there. And then we cut to the, the, the shadow of the mini and we see it twist and mutate into this beast man. And so uh, I always love this scene because, yeah, we don't actually see a man turn into a monster. We just see the shadow of a minifigure of that man turn into a monster. And it's still highly effective. I agree. Uh, but then, of course, Maggie Smith, she's she's suffering. She's like, how could you do this to my son? He's to marry the princess Andromeda. And Zeus says, let the princess look upon him now. Hmm. Now, of course, Thetis points out Zeus's hypocrisy here. She's like, you know, if if that were your son, you you wouldn't do this to him. Uh, so eventually when Zeus is gone, she's like, I'm going to get revenge. If my son is not to marry Princess Andromeda, then no man will. I will speak to the priests of Joppa in dreams and omens. And as my son Calabas suffers, so will Andromeda. So she's going to send some, send some people some revelations that will interfere with uh, with Andromeda's ability to live a happy life and and with the general uh, well-being of the city of Joppa. Ah, but what of Perseus? Oh, yeah, she's got to get revenge against Zeus's son as well. So here's where she... I, I didn't quite get this. It's like, why is this vengeance? But her vengeance is uh, Perseus. Now he's grown up. Now he's Harry Hamlin. And he's just laying out on the beach one night, uh, you know, just laying there in the sand, looking at the stars, I guess. And she says, time to know the terrors of the dark and look on death. Time your eyes were open to grim reality. And she picks up the minifig of him and moves it to an amphitheater setting. And somehow Harry Hamlin is transported from the island of uh, Seraphos to the amphitheater of Joppa. And there he wakes up. Yep. Uh, I... Did you understand why this was revenge? It just seemed, well, I'm going to take you to a random different place. I yeah, I mean, you know, she has the forethought of a, of a goddess, so maybe she knows more about it. But at the very least, I guess it's like, I'm going to take you away from your secluded beach home, and I'm going to drop you into the middle of a very complex and dangerous city. And we'll see. We'll see how fancy you are. <laughs> But uh, when he wakes up here, he meets uh, a mysterious figure wearing a a grotesque theater mask and shouting at him, Who are you? Walking among all the smoke. But it turns out to be Burgess Meredith, who is perfectly friendly as as this character, Ammon, uh, once once they get to know each other. And he explains, Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I see. I pretend that this amphitheater is haunted to keep people away. This is the amphitheater of Joppa. Here's where you are now. And uh, you must have made the gods angry somehow to get transported here. <laughs> Not sure what the business model for this amphitheater is. Yeah, I wonder about that. Uh, but th- they share some backstory. It turns out Ammon already knows Perseus's backstory because he, he even wrote a poem about it. It turns out Perseus is famous and he didn't even know it. Yeah. But every every moment with Ammon is just a lot of fun because, again, it's um, it's a lighthearted character. 
and Burgess Meredith just brings so much uh, to this performance. Uh, it just breathes life into every little line. I like how he's got a lot of kitty cats around his house. Yep, yep. A whole bunch of, like, you just can't even get to important paperwork because they're just kitty cats everywhere. He gives Perseus a prince costume. Uh, so he's like, you know, welcome to Joppa. Uh, you know, this is more befitting of your role as a prince because you are the, the son of Zeus. And then Zeus finds out that Thetis uh, transported Perseus from Seraphos to Joppa, and he's mad about this. So what's he going to do about it? He's like, well, you know, Perseus is naked. That's no good. We've got to <laughs> equip some items with him. <laughs> he says we need weapons of divine temper. So what are the weapons he gets? It seems like only two of the three things are actually weapons, but uh, let's describe them all. So he gets a magical helmet from Athena. Uh, he gets a sword from Aphrodite and a shield from Hera. And what's the deal with all three of these things? Well, let's, let's see. What the, the magical helmet makes him invisible. The sword is just really good. And the shield, Zeus can talk to him through the shield. I think that's the main power. I think he only does one time, though. Well, no, the hmm. shield is, is reflective. That's what it's Oh, well, it has a, yeah, it has a nice mirror on one side. Yes. It's a mirrored shield, which will come in with Medusa. Uh, but the sword from Aphrodite, I don't know why Aphrodite has the strongest sword in the world, but it's a sword that can cut through stone. Oh, yes. Yeah, we see a scene where it cuts through the stone. That's right. But all of it's really shiny. All of it looks really good. And um, this is also really, it also kind of feels at this point in the picture, it's kind of like lazy uh, dungeon mastering because our character has just been moved by the gods, dropped into a new location and instantly given three um, legendary strength magical items, which he doesn't have to do anything in order to get them. They're just laying around when he uh, comes to. Oof, but I'm imagining uh, Perseus here having to do wisdom saving throws and I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Kind of have a disadvantage there because I don't, you know, he hasn't done any real adventuring. He's done some horse tricks on a beach somewhere, but there, we have nothing to, to indicate that he's, he's ready ex from an experience standpoint to do a lot of adventuring. But again, he is the son of a God. So ideally, I guess there's a lot of this. It's just sort of built into his uh, godlike DNA. I guess so. But as soon as Perseus figures out that the helmet makes him invisible, he puts it on and runs off to Joppa. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in Joppa, Perseus is uh, amazed by the culture. Remember, he's a small town boy, after all. He's mm-hmm. from the, the sleepy island of Seraphos. So I think he's never seen the big city before. And he goes around marveling at all the sights and sounds in the marketplace, the most impressive of which, in my opinion, is the man with the iron mustache, a guy who <laughs> is lifting up this, like, it's got this lady getting into a harness and this dude uses it to lift her entire body off the ground with his mustache. It is most impressive. Yeah. Uh, and this whole, I love this whole sequence here. Cause it's like lepers, strong men, uh, you know, uh, fancy ladies, uh, seductive ladies, people selling things. It's just, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a neat scene. But then Perseus comes across a horrible sight, a body burning on a stake and he meets a guard. Is this Thalo? Is that this is would that be him? him? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He meets Thalo and he gets some exposition. So we learn that this guy burning over here, this was a suitor to the beautiful princess Andromeda. Andromeda's mother, Cassiopeia, originally pledged Andromeda's hand in marriage to Calabas, but Calabas was cruel. And he did some bad stuff. He was kind of a Taz. And then he got transformed into a horrible monster. So now he's very ugly and Andromeda refused to marry him. And as a result, the city is cursed. It's swarmed with stinging marsh flies. And also now any man can propose to Andromeda. I guess they've lowered their standards, but he's got to answer a riddle first. And those who fail the riddle die. Perseus, however, is up for a challenge. He seems interested in this. He's like, well, maybe this this is where I should apply myself. Right. So he puts on the invisible helmet, sneaks up to Andromeda's room at night. And I was thinking, what's the plan here? Does he be like, hi, you don't know me, but I can turn invisible. What do you say we get married? And I skip the riddle. 
Yeah, uh, like, but then he just sort of like he just looks at her while she's sleeping, like a yeah. creep for a little bit. Yeah, come on, Perseus. But I guess the idea is he confirms, like, it's love at first sight. He like realizes I am now in love with her. I will do whatever it takes to uh, you know get a shot at this riddle and answer it. Right, and he sees that every night uh, to her room comes a flies a giant vulture like that settles on her balcony and brings a cage, and I think her soul leaves her body. And it gets into the cage, and then the vulture carries it off. Yeah, and this is another great Harryhausen effect, this giant vulture. The vulture takes it to the swampy stronghold of Calabas every night to receive the new riddle for her suitors. Uh, and so Perseus figures, hey, I could follow her to the enemy encampment, and there I could learn the riddle in advance so I can cheat. The moral of the story, real heroes cheat. I mean, I guess he realizes it's a rigged system, so he's going to try and get the intel he needs. But in order to follow the flying vulture, he has to be able to fly himself. So first there's a scene where he has to capture Pegasus, the winged horse. Uh, you know, I liked Pegasus, but I, I don't really love this sequence. It, it feels kind of nasty when he's catching the horse by throwing a rope around its neck. It's like, oh, the poor, poor Pegasus. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that so much. I was, I was just so blown away by how good this uh, this effect looks. I kept thinking about how like you're having to animate a, a realistic horse which is a very dynamic animal. I mean, this isn't like a, an articulated crab or a scorpion. Like, this is a horse. There's a lot, that's a lot of animal. And then on top of that, you've added these beautiful wings to it. And so, um, yeah, it seems like quite a challenge, but yeah, Harryhausen pulls it off. But the taming process works. He tames and rides the Pegasus. So now he's got one. Uh, and the next night, he, 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 He's got one. Like there's multiple Pegasus. There's just one Pegasus, I guess. <laughs> this he, is the last get, one, right? Yeah. <laughs> he Calibus, gets Pegasus. like grilled up the other ones. <laughs> right. Turned him into barbecue. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, he rides Pegasus to the swamp, follows the, the uh, vulture at the night. Uh, and they go to the swamp of Calabas, you know, where the bull gators beller and the panthers squall. And they, they land there. And I love this set. Uh, it's a, you know, a classic misty indoor for outdoor swamp uh, that's got skeletons hanging from trees and uh, little alligators and all that stuff. Um, general thoughts about the Calabas sequence, Rob? Well, I think if, if memory serves, the part of the situation with the Calabas character is that originally it was going to be entirely stop motion. And then at some point in creating the script, they realized they wanted they were going to need a, a human to play the character as well. So we do a lot of cutting back and forth between stop motion Calabas and, um, and the uh, an actual, actual human actor in makeup. And, uh, and so I guess it can still be a little jarring, even in a picture like this, it kind of, uh, that has a lot of cutting back and forth between an integration between live action and stop motion. Um, but of course, that being said, like the stop motion Calabas looks amazing. You get that tail sweeping around um, and, uh, and so forth. Looks really good. And then, like I said earlier, the, the, the character of Calabas, as we get to know him here, you know, he's he's a tragic villain. Uh, he's he's seated on this throne of sadness in his swamp. Um, it's uh, so there's a this is a, this is a fun sequence. Yeah, so Andromeda's there, and, and she begs him, you know, lift the curse from Joppa, release my soul. He's like, no, I, I'm going to give you a new riddle. Uh, so, you know, use this to, to doom yet another suitor, another would-be mm. hero. And uh, you, you can see also, but there's like a scene where she, she touches his face, I think, when she's asking him to, to lift the curse. And I don't know, it it is very sad. Like, you see him, you know, like, wishing he could have had a better life. Yeah. 
But uh-oh, she walks away, and then Calabas, he looks in the sand and sees, what is that? Is that invisible, uh, the footsteps of an invisible Harry Hamlin? <laughs> <laughs> and then he's mad. So uh, Harry Hamlin, we see him walking off into the... Uh, into the swamp, and then Calabas ambushes him, and they fight for a bit. Uh, the helmet of invisibility gets knocked off of uh, uh, Perseus's belt and falls into the swamp waters. Bye bye. Yeah, one legendary magical item completely gone, just lost it. <laughs> yeah, and we don't know exactly how the fight resolves. We see Perseus like land some kind of blow with his sword, and then it just cuts to the next day, where uh, Andromeda is there gathered, I guess, in the the temple of Thetis in Joppa. And, uh, the, you know, they're like, Hey, is anybody going to step up and, and propose marriage to her? Perseus does. And so they ask him the riddle. And I was like, this is not a riddle. She just describes a strange image and then says, what can it be? And the answer does not really rely on any cleverness. The answer is the ring on Calabas's hand, which Harry Hamlin has because he cut Calabas's hand off. Oh Yeah. So he fills us in. He says, hey, yeah, I defeated Calabas in battle. I cut off his hand uh, and I spared his life on the condition that he lift the curse from the city. So he correctly answered the riddle and the, the curse, it seems at least, has been lifted. So are we happily ever after now? But that wouldn't make sense. We're only like 45 minutes into the movie. I know. It seems like things are going well. The labyrinth is a piece of cake. But oh, so while they're off partying and, you know, uh, uh, Perseus and Andromeda are kind of getting to know each other. They're like, oh, yes, I guess we are in love now. Uh, Calabas comes into the temple. He kneels before the statue of Thetis and he prays for a way to get revenge on Perseus. He says, show me how to punish Perseus for this blasphemy. And Thetis says to him, well, can't hurt Perseus because Zeus protects him. Uh, so Calabas instead is like, well, then let me get revenge on the people Perseus loves, Andromeda and the people of Joppa. He begs her to send the Kraken. So I think it's the next day. There's a the marriage ceremony. They're about to be joined together forever. Uh, and then uh, it's at the marriage ceremony that the queen, Cassiopeia, is like, um, good thing uh, my daughter is even more beautiful than the goddess in this statue here. And then the, <laughs> the statue is like, and its head falls off. Mm -hmm. And then we get that scene where suddenly it's Maggie Smith's face, like superimposed onto the statue, speaking to them. I'm going to say this effect looks funny, and I don't think it was supposed to. Most of the effects in this movie, I think, are beautiful. But this one is is a bit comic. Mm. I like that. I mean, I, I, on one level, I like the effect of it. It's like you really messed up. You 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 went too far. You mocked the, the gods, and so now the goddess is appearing to you through this crumpled statue, and uh, and pronouncing doom. That's right. And she does. Jeez. She does lay out some doom. Yes. Uh, for the insults to me and my son, I demand the sacrifice of Andromeda in thirty days. We're gonna feed her to the kraken. So now Perseus has a new riddle to solve, and that is. What are we going to do about this Kraken? Yeah, how do you kill a Kraken? Uh, Ammon originally says, uh, no man knows how to kill a Kraken. And so Perseus says, oh, uh, that's no good. Uh, but Ammon says, but there may be a woman who does. Actually, three women. We must consult the Stygian witches. They may know a way. But there's a problem. They tend to eat people. Mm. But the heroes are not deterred. So all of our all of our friends now get together. Harry Hamlin, Burgess Meredith, Andromeda. Uh, what's his name? The the soldier that Thallo or whatever it is, and then a bunch mm -hmm. of other unnamed soldiers who are uh, might as well be uh, wearing you know red Starfleet shirts. Right? Yeah, they're they're damned. You know that they're just pure monster fodder. 
So they're going to head off to find the witches. Now, I think they don't initially know how to find the witches, but uh, the Zeus has a way to help with this. Uh, we, we go back to the gods and Zeus is like, uh, this is the part where he goes up to Athena. He's like, hey, uh, that helmet you gave my son, well, he dropped it in a swamp. He needs a new gift. Uh, give him your <laughs> owl, your friend, the boobo here. Uh, you know, it is all seeing, all knowing. You shouldn't be a problem for you to give it, uh, give it to my son. And she's like, ew, let a mortal have my owl. That's gross. <laughs> So she's not going to do that. Instead, she gets Pat Roach to make him a robot owl. And we briefly see a scene in the forge of Hephaestus where he's kneeling over a table and he's like a watchmaker. He's messing with all the little gears and stuff. Yeah, it's a fun sequence. I don't know. It's a different type of role for for Pat Roach here. And um, and also it's kind of like I mean, we've talked about the, the tactile nature of the stop motion effects. And Bubo really has that tactile feel. And it really begins here watching him physically assembled by Hephaestus. Now he flies up to our heroes and settles down on a tree branch. But Bubo is also played for comic relief, much like the <laughs> droids in Star Wars. He kind of like beep, beep, boop. And then he falls off the branch and lands head first on the ground and goes, woo, woo, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is again, every time Bubo does something, there are a lot of movements to it. Like a lot, a lot of love went into creating this effect. I do love Bubo and I bet little kids especially love Bubo. Oh, yeah. I, I remember showing this to my son a couple of years, but he loved, I, he wasn't up for rewatching it. He wasn't interested in rewatching it with me for this episode, but he's watched it a couple of times in the past and loved all the monsters in it, of course, and loved Bubo. The ancient Greek astromech droid. Yeah, which does it does serve a navigational function, guides them to the three witches. That's exactly right. Bubo can lead them to the shrine of the Stygian witches. And so they go there. They have to climb a mountain to get up to the shrine. Uh, the three witches, just as in the myth, the three of them share one eye between them. Though it's not an eye here, really. It's like a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they hold it up to their forehead and to their like, fleshed over eye sockets. And there's a certain amount of squabbling among them about who gets to use it next. And, oh, but yeah, this sequence is a lot of fun because there's a lot of cackling. There's a lot of, uh, like, oh, of course we'll tell you about the, uh, about where you can find, uh, uh, well, I guess they reveal the, the, they're not even looking for Medusa at this point, right? But they reveal that Medusa's away. But, well, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Like, in order to get the advantage, of course, uh, um, Perseus has Bubo fly in and steal the eye. Yes. So now he has uh, something to bargain with. Yeah, so they're like, give us back the eye, and he says, no, first got to tell me how I can defeat a Kraken, and they, they do tell him an idea. Yeah, and it's, you should go get the head of the Medusa. It works even if she's been slain. Of course, the only problem is she's more dangerous than the Kraken, so you're you're going to have a really hard time pulling this off. Um and in the midst, there's all sorts of fun stuff going on in here. They have a big cannibal stew going. Mm-hmm. They have to, like, push a squirming hand back into it. And I, <laughs> I really love the one witch who's, she's, like, talking about how, yes, you'll be able to, to use Medusa's head against, uh, against the Kraken, a titan against a titan. And she's all excited about it. Um, really excited to deliver on the film's title. Oh, yes. And I do love the, their disgusting cauldron of slop. There, There is very funny sound effects. And when like a human hand reaches out of it going like, eh, and they just kind of like tuck it back in. Like, Shit, be quiet. Get down in there. <laughs> All right. So next thing is they got to get the head of the Gorgon Medusa. So they, they cross the river Styx to get to the island of the Gorgon. 
Uh, there, there is of course a big battle. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail about everything about this battle. You, 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 you just need to watch it for yourself, but it is wonderfully atmospheric. It's very well paced, like the lead up to it, a little things they see approaching her, her, uh, lair, the, the human shaped, uh, stone statues that kind of crumble. Uh, oh, and the, the, of course we, we find out that Medusa has been working in the Kremlin with the two headed dog. Oh yeah, the two-headed dog I think may have been cut from the Turner broadcast. They probably cut it, cut the movie for length. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember ever seeing the two-headed dog when I watched it. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But um, uh, in the the two, it's a two-headed dog instead of a three-headed dog. It's uh, not like Cerberus. Not a, yeah, it's not Cerberus. But I think it's because it was too much work to do a three-headed dog. That's what I've always read. Mm-hmm. So they went with two. They scaled it back a bit. Um, I, I don't sense. love the two headed dog fight because I don't know. I just always like, seeing somebody fight a dog, even a vicious one with a sword always just makes me be like, oh, oh no. Yeah. Like the movie doesn't lose anything to have that whole sequence cut in my opinion. Um, but setting aside the, the battle with the two headed dog, I would say the Island of the dead sequence here where they find Medusa's lair, go in, fight Medusa, multiple soldiers get killed by Medusa. We have this fabulous stop motion Medusa. This whole sequence is just absolutely perfect. No matter yes. what problems you know you might have with the rest of the picture and its tone and the lazy DMing and Harry Hamlin's performance and being a bit green, I feel like everything's firing on all cylinders in this sequence. Even Harry Hamlin, I think, is really good because he's He's he embodies this like hero's fear rather well, I think, in this sequence. Like, like it feels like there are actual stakes even for the son of a god. Completely agree. Pretty much everything in this scene is pitch perfect. Uh, there, there are so many little details I love. I like how quiet it is. Actually, you would have expected mm-hmm. the whole thing to be. Uh, you know, uh, ramping up with like loud, intense music, but uh, there are parts of it that are actually very quiet. And I love that it contributes to the creepy atmosphere, like the part before you see the Gorgon when they're looking for her and they're walking between the columns. And then suddenly you see her shadow go uh, move into the move onto the wall. And there's this soft, almost silent slithering sound, just the the sound of a snake, you know, moving over a stone and not even hissing yet. Just, just that little gliding. And you see uh, the shadow with the, the snakes writhing in her hair and, Oh, it's so good. Oh yeah. The lighting is brilliant in all of this as well. Uh, so, so many Harry Hamlin, uh, not Harry Hamlin, Harry Housen um, scenes, you, you often have things going on in very like stark lighting. Um, but in this sequence, it's, you know, it's this dark cavern with, with fires, lighting, everything, uh, deep shadows and so forth. It's so good. Also the moment when you see Medusa kind of activate her powers to mm-hmm. uh, to turn one of the other soldiers to stone where we zoom in on her face, which is horrifying and her eyes glow green and, and the, the power emanates from her. And then he's, he's uh, calcified. That is just, uh, it, it's a scene for the ages. Absolutely. Uh, I've also read, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've read that Harry Hamlin himself had to argue for the uh, traditional beheading of the monster. I think there, I had read that like some version of the script or the way they were going to shoot it was him throwing the shield and using it as a weapon, uh, mm-hmm. supposedly like to have it be a little less gory for censors. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if this is true, but it said that Harry Hamlin was one of the ones who was like, no, we should stick to the myth on this. I don't know. But at any rate, I'm, if that is the case, I'm glad they, they did because it, uh, yeah, I can't imagine this, this sequence playing out any other way. 
Yeah. And then he, and you can feel the danger in the scene. Even after he has beheaded her, he's afraid. He's being very cautious, like, because her blood is running out and her blood, her blood is like, uh, it's like the blood of the xenomorph in Alien. It's just this burning acid that melts his shield. And he mm-hmm. takes her head, but he's afraid. He's like, careful not to accidentally even look at it. He's like holding it out of his view. I'm glad you mentioned Alien because Alien came out a few years earlier, and I feel like this sequence has some similarities to that final showdown uh, on the um, uh, on the life vessel between Ripley and the, the Xenomorph. Mm. You know, the the sense of intense danger, like the monster is so dangerous that the wrong move will just be absolutely lethal. I can see exactly what you mean. Yeah, that similarity is there. And they're and also the both posture. pretty naked. <laughs> yes. Both yes, barely yes. dressed. Yes. And the posture with which the hero is oriented to the monster with like with the back to it, but uh, against, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hiding behind a, an, a, an obstruction. And so when we finally finish up the Medusa sequence, it almost feels like we've done it. But this is the end of the movie, right? Like, it's just so satisfying. But we still have like a large chunk of the film to go at that point because they have to. This was just a side quest to get something to defeat the ultimate threat in the picture. Though I do think it is the highlight. But we yeah, we do get several other battles. There's a great battle. Uh, Calabas shows back up and attacks uh, Perseus and and his friends with scorpions, uh, giant scorpions. This is your... Uh, you know, this is about as classic Harryhausen as you get, you know, stop motion mm-hmm. scorpions coming at your heroes and they have a big fight. And then Calabas comes in himself and they fight him and Calabas is go- he's bringing a whip, which is <laughs> that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, he has the whip and he also he's replaced his hand with like a stabby tool, which yes. he, he used to like stab the Medusa head, get it bleeding and the blood turned into scorpions on the ground. That's right. That's great. Yeah, uh, but Calabas is defeated in the end. And then finally, how is Perseus going to defeat the Kraken? Well, we see Andromeda, you know, they take her down to the shore. It's like, yep, too bad. We're going to have to give you to the sea monster. And he pops up. Perseus at the last minute is able to unveil that Gorgon head, show it right to the monster and just stone him up. Yep, and then he crumbles, which is something I always liked. And I remember even as a kid, I was thinking about this. It's kind of like, okay, the, the creature... Its body can physically hold itself together while it's flesh, but once it becomes stone, like it, like it just begins to crumble, like it can no longer stand. Uh, I don't know. I always like that that detail. Yeah, but it introduces the brittleness. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's very dramatic too. It's like not only is the monster petrified, but now it crumbles into pieces. It's completely destroyed. Mm. And then we get like a we do get a little sort of outro with the gods, which felt kind of weird because yeah. we've we've seen how how petty and cruel they are, and they just have this kind of bit where the other gods are like, well, th- you know, these human these mortals really showed how heroic and brave they can be. It's I, I hope there aren't too many brave ones, otherwise uh, we're going to be out of a job. And they're just they kind of have like a bemused laugh at all of this, but are also kind of like, yeah, humans are all right after all. <laughs> And they all live happily ever after. Yeah. So I love Clash of the Titans. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is a this one's near and dear to me. Uh, uh, so it's great to, to finally discuss it here on Weird House Cinema. And like you say, maybe in the future we'll come back and look at another uh, Harryhausen picture. Yeah, there are a number of good ones to choose from there. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. But uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Do you have memories of seeing Clash of the Titans on Turner Networks growing up like I do? <laughs> or did you see it in the theater? What was that like uh, back in uh, in 81? 
uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. If you have suggestions for other films to cover in the future, uh, do you have favorite Harryhausen effects or monsters or favorite Harryhausen movies? Uh, yeah, let, write in. We'll discuss it on Lister Mails, which publish on Mondays. We're primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film here on Weird House Cinema. And if you want to see a list of the films we've covered in the past, you can go to a couple of different places. I blog about these episodes at samutamusic.com and also if you go to letterbox that's l-e-t-t-e-r-b-o-x-d.com well that we have a user account there weird house and we have a list of all the films we've covered and sometimes a peek ahead at what's coming up in the week to follow huge thanks to our audio producer jj posway if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.